You are listening to episode 40. Today, I talk with Dr. Phoebe Zen, and we talk about how surgery training and practice are more flexible than you think. Also, go to bosssurgery.com if you want to sign up for Stop Hating Clinic. We didn't become surgeons to hang out in clinic, but it doesn't have to be as bad as you think. Come join me, bosssurgery.com. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited today to have Dr. Phoebe Zen. She is an endocrine surgeon and she and and I crossed paths when we were discussing different aspects of careers and modeling our careers in different ways to work around our life. And so I'm very interested to see how she's adapted to her schedule to change like how her life looks right now. So uh, Dr. Zen, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am an assistant professor of surgery at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and I've been in this role since about September, October of last year. And so on my clinical piece, I work 0.3 FTE. So I have half a day of clinic on Thursdays, and then I operate on Fridays. Um, the rest of my time, I actually work full-time for Intuitive Surgical as Medical Director of Global Access Value and Economics. And this is the group that works on real-world evidence generation and management and health policy and payer reimbursement. That's very cool. So now this is clearly not something that we learn about in residency. So take us through your pathway and how you started from the traditional linear, which as we were talking about before recording is a bit of a myth, like having a normal family, but take us a little bit through your path and how you ended up on this path that's a little bit less traveled. Yeah. Okay. So buckle in because this is a really long story. Um So I uh, grew up in California and I came to Texas, to Houston for my general surgery residency. And I had just a phenomenal chair. It was Barbara Bass. So um, past president of the American College of Surgeons and a bunch of other societies. So she has basically just been my champion for life since the time I was an intern. And when I was a second year resident, I had this really... Um, terrible incident that happened um, clinically, which was uh, I was on the liver transplant service and we had this patient that had uh, an HCC that was on the transplant list and they were coming in for surveillance scans every couple of months to make sure that they were still a candidate for a liver transplant. And what had happened was um, this patient um, came to uh, clinic and they um, we're supposed to then be scheduled for embolization to sort of keep the tumor small enough in order to still qualify for transplant. But they fainted in the IR suite and then they were sent to the emergency room. And so this was in the middle of the Texas Medical Center, but this um, we were not a trauma center. And so this patient was basically stuck down in the ER for many, many, many hours being somewhat 
poorly resuscitated. Um, we didn't have a lot of invasive monitoring. We weren't used to patients essentially being in shock. And so the patient sort of languished down there um, for several hours while all the ICUs were full. And so we could never actually get this patient into an intensely monitored setting. And then eventually we were able to find an ICU bed. The patient did get lined up, got stabilized, and then went through the CT scanner. And it turned out that their HCC had freely ruptured into their abdomen. So not only did they lose a tremendous amount of blood in their abdomen, but there was essentially free tumor all of their abdomen as well now. And then gradually the patient went into multi-organ system failure and died. And as a resident, that was really devastating to me because here we were in the middle of the Texas Medical Center. There were literally like a dozen really amazing hospitals on this one street. And we didn't have the resources to put this patient in the right place at the right time to be able to give them the best chance that they could have gotten. And so I went and talked to Dr. Bass and I said, I really don't understand how this hospital is run. Like, I don't understand how people make these decisions about who gets a bed, like who even gets to make that decision. And so um, with her support and then the support of the CEO of the hospital at the time, Mark Boom, um, I uh, went to Duke during my, you know, personal research development time. That's, I think that's what people call it nowadays is the resident personal development time. And I went and got my MBA at Duke with a focus in health sector management. And, um, and that was a fabulous two years. So I was actually a full-time student. I was there for two years and, and that's where it sort of started, um, going off on a little bit of some tangents. And so, um, I had, this very uh, small startup that I started with a couple of my classmates and we worked on serious gaming. And so um, we worked on games, not for uh, entertainment purposes, but gaming for skills acquisition and gaming for knowledge transfer. And so we had made this one game for the Duke Clinical Research Institute on how to teach medical students how to negotiate. Um, and so in the summertime, you're supposed to apply for an internship. So I actually applied for a marketing internship at Intuitive Surgical, which I didn't get. Um, but my resume was forwarded on to Miriam Curette, who at the time was the chief medical advisor at Intuitive Surgical. She is an MIS surgeon at Stanford at the time. And she decided to hire me to help gamify the simulator. And so um, the intuitive robotic simulator. So I spent two summers there working on um, different uh, principles of gaming for the simulator and then also creating another game, working on improving uh, principles of OR efficiency for circulators and scrub techs um, for robotic turnover. And so that's how I spent two summers. Uh, and at the end of the two summers, um, it was sort of a fork in the road. Like, um, so then there was a question like, do I stay at intuitive? Do I go back and finish residency? Um, so I decided that I wanted to be a surgeon. So I'm going to go back and finish residency. But Miriam, she just had this incredible foresight. And she said, well, that's okay. We can get you back someday as a fully trained surgeon. Um, 
And so I went back and I did residency, um, but um, Dr. Bass and I had created a sort of new administrative tract. And this tract was basically folding in an, an administrative fellowship, a hospital administrative fellowship. So that whole reason I went to business school in the first place to learn how the hospital was run. And we folded it into the rest of my clinical training. So it did extend my training by a year. But the way we arranged it was every few months, I would do, I'd come off of a clinical rotation. And then I would spend one to two months um, um, doing project work for one of the VPs of the hospital. And so we would work on different service lines. So one month I would be with the CEO of the hospital or the CEO of the hospital system. And then other times I would be with the physician organization or the VP of quality. Um, and so through that, um, I got to learn a lot of different things. I got to learn about different compensation models for physicians. Um, I got to learn about how beds were triaged. Um, and so at the end of that, um, I felt like I had a pretty good basis in training for um, understanding how the hospital was run. And I went to UCLA and did my endocrine surgery fellowship. And then I came back to uh, Houston Methodist and I started my first job, um, which was an amazing job. It was 50% hospital administration, 50% endocrine surgery. And um, the hospital administration piece focused a lot on surgical quality. So my official title was uh, assistant clinical program director of surgical quality and population health. Um, and so I was the Nisquip surgeon champion. Um, I worked with the hospital in looking at our Vizient metrics. And so just spend a lot of time understanding uh, how these data were collected, how they were cleaned, um, how they were benchmarked. Um, so that was my first job. And then near the end of my uh, first couple of years, really transitioned over a little bit to implementation of digital technologies within the department. Um, pilot testing, things like Notable and CareSense. So both clinician workflow tools, um, as well as patient digital engagement pathways. And so really kind of an interesting job. Um, and then, uh, so right before COVID hit, um, Dr. Bass left me. So she actually, um, took a job as the dean at GW and she moved back to Washington, D.C. And I basically had like you had a sort of early midlife crisis. Um, some of the work that I was now being offered on the hospital side, on the quality side, was very necessary for the hospital, but it just wasn't that exciting to me. And so like some of the projects were about like, you know, like you sit in a room for several hours uh, a week and you just basically try to figure out like how to get this patient out of the hospital, right? Like what is it that is keeping this patient in the hospital? And so it's multidisciplinary and 
Um, you like figure out like, are there testing? Is there testing that we can accelerate? And, and it's again, very necessary for the hospital, but just not that interesting to me. And so that's when I sort of started looking at different types of jobs. Um, so I had looked into uh, digital health um, and I had gotten some people who had reached out to me through LinkedIn and I had interviewed with a couple of um, companies then. And then I reached out to Miriam, who thankfully was still at Intuitive Surgical, but now was the um, chief medical officer. Um, and so she said, well, why don't you do some consulting for us and you can figure out where you can bring value to the company. And so she introduced me to several people within the company and I um, started doing consulting for my current group, which is Global Access Value Economics. And I really liked the work. Um, it sort of dovetailed nicely with sort of some of the digital work that I had done and as well as some of the quality work I had done. So it was just really a good fit. And they were obviously very flexible about the time and continue to be very flexible about the time. Around September of last year, I joined full time um, and they have always been very um, accepting of someone with a partial clinical role. So um, intuitive, we currently employ about nine surgeons, soon to be 11, and nearly all of them still have some sort of clinical practice. Yeah. And you, what strikes me uh, throughout your entire story, because I'm trying to think like, you know, how does all of this happen? And it sounds like you found ways to be very flexible in ways that, you know, so it sounds like you questioned the whole traditional path altogether very early on. And and it sounds like one secret to that success was finding someone who advocates for you. And it sounds like you found at least two people that advocated for you. Um, do you feel like that's the main secret behind your uh, ability to successfully navigate this non-traditional path? Oh, yeah. Like having mentorship and sponsorship is, yes, like it, it is. You, you can succeed without it, but it will just take you so much longer and it's so much harder. Um, so I, again, had been very lucky that Dr. Bass had kind of just taken me under her wing. Like, even though we're no longer at the same institution, we actually still talk once a month. Like, we still have a standing meeting once a month where I just bounce ideas off of her. Um, and in terms of, like, personality, her personality is very similar to Miriam. And so I kind of always... Um, saw those same leadership mentorship qualities in both of them, which is why I was kind of drawn to both of them. And that's a great question. Can you articulate what it was that you saw in them? And, you know, what made them good uh, mentors and, and uh, advocates for you? Like, what was it that you saw in them that drew you to them? Yeah, well, one is that they're both just really nice people, right? Like, there are definitely people that are very successful in surgery who you would not want to be necessarily be your friend, but both of these people, um, I just saw and they were just incredibly warm and welcoming. Um, and then the other thing is that they will both give you pretty honest feedback. Like if you have something that is just 
not a good idea. They will just tell you, no, that's never going to work. Like that's never going to work in this context. And so, um, uh, when I was at Methodist, we actually have this thing called, um, Methodist nice, which means like nobody will actually say no to your face. They'll just drag it along, <laughs> drag it out for as long until you basically just give up on it. And so, um, but for both Miriam and Barbara, they're so amazing in that they will actually just tell you when something is not going to work. And that's great. It's actually going to fit with a podcast episode you have not heard yet because it's going to drop tomorrow. Um, and that's with Dr. Cho. And we were talking about how do you know you're under a bad leader? And he basically said the exact opposite of what you said, would, you know, where you can tell you have like a, you just have a feeling something's not right. And if you articulate it, it's because you don't really trust them. You don't feel like they're honest with you. You don't feel like they have your best interest at heart. And you have like the had the exact mirror opposite in in both of them. And so I think that being able to articulate what it is you like about someone is is how you realize, ah, I, I like them and because I know I can trust them, I could see they're out for my best interest. And that can help out a lot. Take me through your residency path. Now I know typically did you have a lot of challenges in, you know, taking these times for doing the gaming and um and the the um, studying at Duke. How do, were you able to successfully navigate those changes? Yeah. So again, I really credit Dr. Bass with that because she just sort of had a vision for how flexible surgical education could be. Right. The um, the when I came back and did my administrative fellowship, that actually fell really nicely into the ABS's six year flexible training plan. Right. Mm -hmm. and so um, I think the board recognized that. Um, there are many paths to being a surgeon and we should allow young people the flexibility and the freedom to figure out how um, they want it to be. Um, and so as long as you get your 60 months of clinical training um, and you get all your other requirements done, like really, does it matter if that happens in five years, six years, seven years, eight years? Um, so um, we did have to apply in order to get that approved from the board, um, but it again, it fell really nicely under a existing framework. That's great. And I love that lesson. The very first thing is just to question the path that you're told is the way to go. Um, and we actually can, you know, do things different ways. And so it's great that you had someone ahead of you that that, you know, essentially kind of gave the permission to do so or by showing that it was possible and that it was acceptable. Uh, so take me through your MBA at Duke. What made you decide to get an MBA and what did you get out of it? Yeah. So my, the CEO of my hospital had gotten an MBA while he was in fellowship actually at Penn. Um, and so we had had some conversations about it and I had specifically picked Duke because most of the time when there's a healthcare focused MBA and, and to be fair, this is true at Duke as well. Um, the, it's very heavily focused on pharma and med device, right? Like it's not very heavily focused on the hospital side, the physician side or the insurance side, right? And um, the reason that the Duke program was appealing to me was because previously they had a uh, master's in health 
and hospital administration and MHA that got folded into the MBA program. And so now the alumni base was very rich in people who worked on the hospital side. And so that's what sort of appealed to me about that program. Yeah. And what were some of the things that you took away from those two years? Are there anything that was a surprise to you or what were some of your big takeaways I know, I mean, asking about to your MBA program in a couple sentences, but, you know, tell me about that. Um, I was surprised about the types of courses I liked. Um, so my two favorite courses were decision modeling, so just decision sciences um, and, uh, and managerial accounting, um, which are two very different courses, but... Um, Decision modeling is interesting because it's all about how to optimize decision making using data. Um, and so this is the one where they teach you how to build these super complex decision trees and figure out what the payouts for each step are um, and the probability of each thing happening. And um, so that one is actually helpful in my current job because when we do health economic modeling, we also rely a lot about decision trees. And then the other one is managerial accounting. And that one really is about like telling a story through the numbers and then also figuring out if people are manipulating the numbers to tell the story that they want. And so, um, so that, um, so that class was amazing in that um, it definitely told me like how people um, can sort of you know, tell the story that they want through the numbers, which happens all the time in hospitals. <laughs> I remember that uh, that book, it's an older book now, but uh, How to Lie with Statistics. <laughs> it sounds like you can lie with accounting too. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like that you started on this path because you saw this, you know, relatively traumatic event and realized that there was a better way. How has your path uh, helped you? Do you feel like you're still on that path of improving the system or has your, your goals changed over time? I think both. Um, I think once, once I was in my first job, like I saw a lot of different ways that we could have optimized the system and not always necessarily from the sort of patient safety standpoint, that sort of, that prompted this whole journey in the first place, but even in terms of the patient ex um, patient experience or the physician experience, the surgeon experience, and I just saw a lot of things that were sort of ripe for some sort of disruption or innovation or some sort of digital technology. And that part still really appeals to me. And that part forms the basis of some of my work at Intuitive today is just figure out like how do we deliver value to different stakeholders, right? Whether that's going to be the hospital system, the surgeon, or the patient. Yeah. I love that you are looking at more than just, you know, one perspective. Cause I think that one thing that we learned through residency is how to take care of the patient. Then we learned a little bit more about the hospital systems. And it sounds like you had a, a you know, a pretty wide ranging approach from early on. Now, Take me a little bit through this, um, you know, being a part-time surgeon, did you have any resistance along the way or have you had, you know, what are the problems that have come up because of that? I will say that in terms of 
problems, like real problems, there aren't that many, like there are some sort of just minor daily irritations, right? That I think you can find in every job. Like, um, so when I made the transition over to Baylor, I basically had to set up a brand new clinic and that had its own growing pains. Um, but that's mostly sorted out. And I think I probably would have had similar growing pains going anywhere else as well. Um, I, I do miss having residents once. So when I was at, um, Methodist, um, I had residents that, uh, covered my cases, but not necessarily residents in my clinic and not always learners in my clinic. Um, but, that was also very meaningful to me to have learners in my OR. Um, so right now when I operate, I operate with a fantastic physician's assistant, which definitely makes me more efficient because now I don't have a learner, but um, it's also somehow less meaningful, right? Like, so it, it's been a trade-off in that sense. Um, so I, I, I didn't really have a lot of, I like had surprising little resistance to getting this set up. Um, again, it really comes down sort of to the leadership of your organization. And so for my organization, Baylor College of Medicine, um, there's been this big push for innovation over the last couple of years. And so they are sort of very comfortable with these types of arrangements, right? So my chair, Todd Rosengart, he has three startups. And um, and then one of the cardiac surgeons, Billy Cohn, also works for Johnson Johnson. And so um, there has, again, sort of someone has already paved the way. And so this arrangement is actually not that unusual for them. That's so interesting to see um, that you're surrounded by lots of people with different models of practice. Uh, and, you know, for me personally, I didn't see a lot of these different models. I, I was in the military system, so we all did the same thing. We did a couple different operational kind of things. How are your partners or do you have partners or who covers your patients when you're not there? There are four endocrine surgeons at Baylor. There is one person who is full-time at the VA. Um, and then the, the three of us are in um, sort of with our uh, private hospitals and and we can cover for each other when it's necessary but the good thing about endocrine surgery is that sort of all the chaos is a little bit self-contained uh, for the most part our patients can at least most of my patients can go home the same day and so i don't actually end up having to round very much um so again i operate mostly on fridays so the vast majority of my patients are home by the end of friday um, and so that has worked out pretty well. Um, I have a pretty good support system. I have two medical assistants, a surgical scheduler, and a physician's assistant. And so they um, can triage some of the uh, issues that come up and the calls that come into clinic. So that works out pretty well. And then every everybody has my cell phone in case of an emergency. So both um all the medical assistants have my cell phone. Uh, my surgery scheduler has my cell phone. I even give my cell phone number to my patients. And so if there is a true emergency, like somebody can reach me. And this uh, mirrors someone else that I've interviewed as well um, of when I asked her about like how the patients and the partners and everyone felt and, and you know, we feel like everyone's going to make a big deal out of it. You know, there's a lot of times what we worry about 
But most of the time, everyone's very accommodating or accepting of this. And it's the first lesson of realizing that we are often our own worst enemies and not picking out the path that we truly want. And I think that you're a great example of, you know, if you see it and you believe it, you can follow it and you can make it happen and you'll find people that support you in that mission. Um, and I think that's a really great lesson Uh when you sort of veer off this this path that a lot of us are on, you start to realize you find all the people that are also not on the path. And then you start to realize it's actually more common than you think and not as hard as we think. And so where do you see your next steps going? Oh, that's a great question. So I just, um, so I'm still relatively junior. I'm about uh, four or five years out of practice. So I actually just signed up for a mentorship program in which I am the mentee. And so um, one of the requirements for the mentorship program was to come up with a list of your goals over the next couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I spent um, some time thinking about that over the past two weeks and obviously I would like to progress within the company. So the company has its own sort of hierarchy, right? Like it has its own individual hiring bands and its own promotion criteria. And then on the Baylor side, obviously there is a list of uh, promotion criteria as well. And so um, from a practical standpoint, I would like to sort of get to the next step, but from a deeper standpoint, I think the things that I would like to work on are um, getting sort of some more technical skills. And I think that would help me a lot from the research perspective. And so one of the, when, when I was a undergrad, I actually was a computer science major. And in my second year, I switched over to being a molecular and uh, molecular and cell bio major. And I kind of always regretted that because like those skills would have come in very handy in sort of multiple arenas of my life. And so my, my goal over the next couple of years is actually to uh, learn a new programming language and get some of these harder, um, more technical skills. That sounds really great. What would you advise someone who is, you know, contemplating going on some of these different paths? What would advice would you give them? I think, like you said, probably the one true limitation is just yourself, right? Like you can definitely find a practice where they're going to be accepting of this type of arrangements again, like surgeons are really valuable. And so even if they can just get a piece of you, they will take a piece of you, right? Like if you do good work, like if you are a safe surgeon and you have good outcomes, like people are going to be willing to just take what they can get of you, right? (laughs) So I think- I love it. So many people don't know this. I mean, it's, it's kind of shocking, but so many people don't realize how valuable we actually are. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's probably the thing is like you, you mentally have to get over it, that it's going to be somehow a burden on someone else for you to make these choices. Um, And I think both aspects of my job really help balance out the other halves, right? Like on the one hand, the intuitive job, it gives me a lot of flexibility. And so they, they don't care when I get the work done, as long as I get the work done. Right. So um, that has opened a lot, opened up a lot of possibilities in terms of like, for example, like me 
attending a ballet recital in the middle of the day for my toddler, right? Like that would have just never happened in the past. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, But my clinical job also does still bring me a lot of meaning, right? Like everybody goes into surgery for a reason. And I think for endocrine surgery, especially, right? Like we're there to cure people because we can cure people like 99% of the time. And so we're there to cure people and, um, and it's great to still be able to get that feeling and still to be able to affect someone's life in such a short period of time and sort of change the trajectory of their life in such a short period of time. Um, and, and, and it definitely having that one foot in the clinical world definitely helps with my intuitive job. And their philosophy has always been like, we want our surgeons to operate because like, we need that feedback, right? Like we need to understand what it is to be a surgeon and the pain that surgeons feel every day, um, in the operating room. So, (laughs) so I'm very grateful for intuitive for having that sort of vision as well. That's great. You know, it's interesting because this po- this all started from a post where I was like, who's working part time? Because I'm thinking like, who's having more free time? And only a surgeon would say like, I think I'd like to fill my time with another almost full time job. <laughs> yeah. How do you? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think you answered a little bit of this question with you know fixing like ballet recitals and things around this. But how are you managing your work life balance? Yeah, I. I think I actually have a better work-life balance than I did previously. Most people in academic medicine will realize that it is actually more than a one FTE job, right? Like there is a lot of uncompensated work in academic surgery where you're working on your research or you're working on your administrative or educational roles. um, And that doesn't always get slotted nicely into your FTE, right? So um, I think Hina says this as well, like you actually probably, you know, work j- just as many hours now, but somehow the hours are more meaningful to you because they're being spent in the ways that you want them spent. I couldn't agree more. And it, in that post, I was joking about anyone working part-time, like, I don't know, 40 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> But it's true. You know, I, I completely agree with you. I think that, uh, you know, just like before we were recording, I was saying that, you know, my goals in work and life is to not work at all. And if I enjoy it, then it doesn't feel like work. Um, and I think that's a, a really achievable goal if we follow what our interests are and try not to let ourselves get in the way and find advocates for ourselves. And I think you're a fantastic example of that. Thank you. All right, Dr. Sin, any last uh, thoughts? Nope. I think that was that was great. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your time. And uh, I know everyone's going to be really fascinated to hear your story. Thank you, Amy. If you want to hear more about the Boss Business of Surgery series and sign up for Stop Hating Clinic, go to bosssurgery.com.